Well, uh, a really, really good evening to you. Um, here's what I want to do just in the time that I've got. I want to retell the Christmas story as we're hearing, but I want to tell you all the bits that never get read out at Christmas Carol. Uh, I want to tell you sort of the bits that usually get avoided and I hope we'll get somewhere with it. I can feel the excitement already building in the room. What's incredible is at the start of the Christmas story, uh, you don't get a once upon a time. You don't even get in a galaxy far, far away. And I'm really glad at the start of the Christmas story you don't get that because if you hear once upon a time, you know immediately that you're going to listen to a fairy tale or a legend or a, a myth or a made-up story. I want a story that is rooted and grounded in history. I want a story full of facts. I want real life. And Matthew, who's one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples, decides to introduce the story just like that. So Matthew chapter 1, these are the first words in your New Testament. He says this. This is the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus the Messiah. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz. That's an actual name. Salmon, who, uh, the father of Boaz, was mother of Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who, called, uh, who is called the Messiah. Thus, here were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, I've summarized it for you because it's just so, so long. And um, it's not how I would start this story, but it's very, very intentional. And I just want to give you a couple of reasons why Matthew decides to start the story like this. Firstly, he's wanting to communicate who is invited into the Christmas story. I don't know if any of you um, have uh, spent some time looking at your family tree and your family history, uh, but I'm married to Philippa, and Philippa's brother-in-law has done all the hard work for us, and Philippa's family goes back all the way to the 13th century. And there's lots of incredible sort of people that uh, are in her family tree, but one stands out in particular, uh, and that's a Swedish princess whose picture actually hangs in Gothenburg Cathedral. Apparently, when she was riding home in her carriage, uh, she realized that she was uh, going home by a different route. And so she sort of pops her head out of the carriage window and, uh, 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 to speak to her driver. But she realizes the driver is not the driver, but actually uh, someone who's trying to kidnap her. And so she obviously panics a little bit, but decides to climb out the back of the carriage, climb onto the roof of the carriage while it's sort of still going. And using her garter, she strangles the robber. Like she throttles him with his garter, manages to chuck him off the roof of the carriage, and then sits down in the seat and takes the horses uh, back to home. Now, this was um, a, a big deal back then, and so she had a portrait painted of her holding her garter in victory. 
Uh, and, but later on, after she had died, they decided to take this portrait and put it in Gothenburg Cathedral. But the priests in the cathedral were a little bit uncomfortable with having this woman holding her underwear up for everyone to see. And so they painted over the, the garter with a Bible. And so, <laughs> and so now you can go and see this amazing lady, but she's not carrying her underwear anymore, but she has a Bible in hand. I think that's pretty cool. Like, I'm really chuffed that that is now in my family tree. I love the fact that the women in my family can beat up robbers. And if you know my wife, Izzy, and daughter Pip, then there's no doubts there. Anyway, but listen, Matthew, when he thinks of his family tree, he includes all the wrong types of people. And it would be genuinely shocking if you read this back then. You see, first up, the, 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 the family tree that I read to you includes five women. And that doesn't sound that unusual, but you need to understand in a patriarchal culture, then a woman would never be named in such a list. Only the fathers, and there are five of them. And most of these women mentioned are all cultural outsiders too. So they were either Canaanite or Moabites. And these nations were seen as unclean and excluded from God's people. And to make matters worse, Matthew includes a really embarrassing case of incest. So the line, I think it's on the screen there, Judah was the father of Peres and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, is just awkward. You see, Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. So there's no getting around it. It happened and everyone winces when her name is mentioned. Then you have Rahab. Rahab wasn't a, an upstanding member of the community. Rather, she was a prostitute. And then King David finally gets a mention, which sounds really promising to have royalty uh, in your family line. And it says, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And again, this is awkward. Uriah was, uh, was one of David's mighty men. He was in the army. He was part of his personal bodyguard. He was a friend who he owed his life to. But David had an affair with Uriah's wife, who fell pregnant after the affair. So David had his friend Uriah murdered off so that he could marry this lady. So in this incredible list of uh, ancestors to Jesus, you find you have cultural outsiders, you have racial outsiders, and you have moral outsiders. You have adulterers and adulteresses and incestuous relationships and prostitutes. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why did he choose to write all that stuff down in our Bibles? Well, loud and clear what Matthew is trying to say is that those who are excluded culturally and racially and morally are invited right into the centre of the Christmas story. It tells us that it really doesn't matter what your background or your pedigree is. 
It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. Jesus receives you. He invites you. He calls you by name and he says to you, believe in me because I believe in you. He says, everyone can be rescued and redeemed. And you might want to put a smile on your face. That's good news at Christmas to know that God is a God of just outrageous mercy and love and kindness, who doesn't look for what you think he would look for. It's not about your behavior or your holiness or your religious life. Rather, it points to his unmerited favor and grace and this open invitation that goes to all of us, not just in this room, but in the world. It tells you quite confidently there is no darkness that this light cannot dispel. So first of all, this weird family tree at the start of the story, it tells you who is invited into the Christmas story. And secondly and lastly, it tells you that God comes to us at Christmas. You see, by giving this genealogy, Matthew is showing that this story is different from other stories, particularly uh, things like um, Aesop's fables, which were inspiring examples of how to live. You see, there isn't a moral to the Christmas story. You're not being asked to copy the shepherds or the wise men or the angels. Rather, the Christmas story is telling you not what you should do, but rather what God has done to pierce the darkness. God has come down to earth in human form. He's entered the story. That's the incredible thing at Christmas. God, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, back in the 1950s and 60s, um, there was a space race between Russia and the United States. And Russia sort of, uh, I guess, won the first round by being the first nation to send someone into space. His name was Yuri Gagarin. And it was said that he remarked upon his return from space that I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. Now, the Russian president, uh, uh, Khrushchev, uh, pounced on this and had this message repeated all across uh, the country. There is no God. We've been up there. He's not there. But one of Christianity's greatest thinkers responded in a quite staggering way. C.S. Lewis, you might have heard of him. He wrote a paper called The Seeing Eye. And he used a different kind of logic and said, if there was a God who created us, we wouldn't discover him by simply going up in the air. Like if you went far enough, you'd eventually bump into an actual place where God was. And God was like, what took you so long? You know, great that you're finally here. Like he's in this physical location outside of this one. God wouldn't relate to us like he's in a big multi-story building and he's like on the top floor and we're on the bottom floor and we've just got to get the lift up and ding, we're there. But rather, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God wouldn't relate to us like that, but he would much more relate to us like Shakespeare interacts with Hamlet. Shakespeare is... Um, obviously the creator of Hamlet and the world that he inhabits. And so if he wanted Hamlet to discover Shakespeare, 
He would have to reveal information about himself into the place where the character could perceive something greater, sort of outside of himself and his world. And that is the claim of Christmas. That God writes himself into the story of mankind by coming into our world as a baby. And this baby grows up to become not just a healer, not just incredible miracle worker or great teacher, but through his death and then his resurrection breaks the power of sin and evil at the cross. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born. We heard this in our uh, second reading, I think. It said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You see, Christians understand that the world is pretty dark out there. And it doesn't take much convincing to know that our world is full of evil and suffering and conflict. But the Christian message also says that it's dark in here. The reason for our mess is something called sin. And we don't talk about sin anymore culturally. Um, But even though we've taken that language away, we've not taken the experience away. Things like anger and hatred and shame and guilt and fear and just this sense that something is fundamentally wrong with me, well, that's what sin does. It breaks our relationships first and foremost with God, but it breaks our relationships with one another. And it makes us into a caricature of what we were created to be. However, Joseph is told by the angel... This, in Matthew 1.21, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This means Jesus is a light that pierces the darkness. At the cross, he suffers in your place. He dies your death. He experiences the judgment that you deserve because of the darkness inside. And when he rises from the grave, defeating the power of sin and death, he looks at you all in the eye and says, I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you uh, to new relationship with God that's been restored and into a new family. Because you can now relate to one another as I designed you to relate. You just have to accept the invitation. And when we receive that invitation, when we say yes to it, it means that the darkness in us, whatever our histories are, whatever has, we've done or been done to us, no longer has to uh, decide our future. It means that you can change your perspective and your purpose in life, just like he did for those uh, incredible parents that we saw on the video. He fulfills that ache in our hearts that there must be something more to life. And he comes to you and you are left to decide whether you want him at work in your life. And what is incredible is here we are, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, and we are still talking about him. I mean, it's just incredible. Billions of people around the planet would say the Christmas story has completely changed their lives. So let me just draw everything to a close, and I thought I'd do that by uh, showing you a little video. I love, every year, the 
the start of Christmas is not the red cups at Starbucks, though some think people think it is. For me, the start of Christmas is the John Lewis advert. And uh, there's always a big build-up every year. This year, to be honest, not overly impressed with that little dragon. But my favourite of all time, my favourite John Lewis advert is from 2013, and it was the hair and the bear. I don't know if any of you remember this, but what we thought we'd do, we'll just show it to you. Uh, Sit back, relax. This is the John Lewis advert, the hair and the bear. This Christmas... The time has come on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And I guess my question for you, you've you've made all the effort to come to this Christmas carol service tonight. Perhaps someone dragged you along or you actually wanted to come yourself. But will you come to God tonight? Will you come to a God who accepts everyone, who comes to you personally? This Christmas, the time has come. You know, what's got in the news probably more than anything recently on my Twitter feed is Kanye West. Kanye's made a very public decision to become a Christian. His album, Jesus is King, is very, very upfront about his conversion. And I've got no idea what's really going on in his life. And I'm trusting that he's really met with Jesus in a powerful way. But he was interviewed by James Corden. And you might have seen that interview. He's on a plane. And and James is, I think, fairly sceptical. And he says to Kanye, Kanye, will this last? And Kanye says this. He says, when you go to sleep, would you agree that you are asleep when you're asleep? And when you wake up, would you agree that you're awake when you're awake? Would you agree that these are two different states? People who don't believe are the walking dead. They're asleep and this is the awakening. And so I guess I want to finish by saying to you tonight that it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up to this incredible story where you are invited in by a God of love. And I'd love to pray for us. We've got a few more carols to sing. But in these few moments, I want to give you the chance to respond yourselves to what you've heard tonight. You know, um, the, the, the simple response to this message is to say yes to God. It's to acknowledge there's a darkness within that only he can set you free from. And to know that on the cross, he wins back this relationship with God that you have been made for. And so in a moment, I'm just going to ask you all to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for us. And if in the room you just know you want to connect with God, you want to come back to God, then I'd really encourage you to pray this prayer with me just in your own heart. So would you mind just bowing your heads just for a moment? Heavenly Father, I'm so sorry for living away from you and I admit my sin I believe you sent your son Jesus to live die and rise again for me in these moments I confess that he is king he is lord of my life and With everything I've got in me, 
i'm deciding to follow you.